linguistic arches. Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. Well, from what I hear and from what I've been reading in my email, for the most part, you've uh, been okay with having a few more trial logs heading your way. And I'll definitely uh, get back to them in a little while. But today I want to get back to the Playa at Burning Man and play another of this year's Playa logs. I'll spare you the explanation of why, once again, we failed to get good recordings of the Palenque Norte talks, but uh, suffice it to say that the talk you're about to hear and the one by Bruce Damer that I podcast a few weeks ago may be the only two plyologues that uh, make it to a podcast. I'm uh, actually asking around right now to see if other recordings exist, but uh, I'm afraid that the ones we made to the 8-track recorder and to the mini-disc recorder, uh, well, they didn't make it. Actually, uh, the plyologue I'm about to play for you uh, was recorded on the 8-track machine, but it cut off exactly at the one-hour point, and uh, so the last part of this conversation may have been lost. Nonetheless, uh, I think that the entire exercise was worth the effort just to have had the conversation you're about to hear right now. And I'll have more to say about that after we listen to this plyologue that was led by Seabrook Leaf at the 2007 Burning Man Festival. And you'll hear more from me about Seabrook in just a minute. Now, from my perspective, the plyologue that you're about to hear is exactly what I had envisioned when I first came up with this idea. And I think that Seabrook did a brilliant job of engaging the entire group in the conversation. Had we not started so late in the afternoon, I'm sure that we could have gone on for several more hours because there were more people lined up at the microphones in the yurt than we had time to invite to speak. For the hour or so before this plylogue began, we uh, had to hunker down and live through the biggest windstorm and whiteout of the week. Until then, at least... Uh, Little did we know that the next day we'd get even a bigger storm. But things uh, had finally begun to settle down to where we could relax and begin looking forward to good weather for the evening's parties. And so our final plyologue of the day began right after the storm of ideas that Dale Pendle had just uh, filled the yurt with as the storm raged outside. And uh, you'll hear Dale join in in this conversation too. This recording begins where uh, Seabrook is mentioning the symbiosis gatherings, and uh, that's followed by my introduction of Brook, during which my dust-addled mind kept calling him Bruce for some reason. So uh, here is how it all went down in the yurt at the pod cluster around 6 p.m. on Thursday during the 2007 Burning Man Festival. It is the impossible become possible, and yet remaining impossible. So, while we're getting ready, I thought there would be time for a brief advertisement. Because I just noticed this sitting here, and I wanted to invite all of you to be aware of the symbiosis gathering, which is has a lot of similarities to Burning Man. It's a very conscious gathering, a very green gathering, a very art-centered gathering. And um, it's a wonderful experience, and there's no uh, huge gales coming through, usually. But um, just go to symbiosisgathering.com if you want to learn more about that. It's in uh, Northern California in September 20th through 24th. All right. And the people who produce this gathering are all family and um, burners, etc. Really good people, good artists. And uh, while, while this is really an anarchistic camp, because I kept asking Bruce, or Bruce, asking Brooke, uh, can I do this, can I do that? And he says, I don't know, who's in charge? So I'd ask La and ask John. And nobody, nobody's in charge, but... Look at the magic that's happened here. And John and I were talking the other day how good Brooke is. That He's not, not a boss or anything. He just says, you know, it would be kind of nice if that got done, that got done. And pretty soon he gets the yurt up and everything. And this is the guy to work for. He's uh, <laughs> done a good job. He's, he really has uh, been the keystone of this, this camp. And uh, in our lives, we've, 
we've met Bruce at conference, or Bruce. I keep calling you Bruce instead of Brooke, but I guess that's not too bad. Bruce Damer's not a bad guy, so. Uh, <laughs> but anyhow, Bruce, uh, <laughs> I'm just going to introduce Seabrook <laughs> and stop talking. The dust has clogged my brain, but I want to personally thank Brooke for all he's done to, to help spearhead this camp, and La, who she and her team have decorated it. Not only that, but La and John and the rest of the team you know, built all this thing and transported it. And we want to thank the whole camp for allowing us to have our plow logs here and to be part of the camp ourselves, too. So uh, thank you, La, John, and Brooke, even though you guys weren't in charge. Uh, tell the person in charge we said thanks. Please help that me welcome be, Seabrook. That would be you. You're in charge. Thank you. So, um, hi everybody. I the um, the topic that I was hoping we could discuss here is I see I think is really very very important, and a lot of our friends who are planning on being here who have really strong interests in this topic obviously couldn't come for because they're probably like fixing their structures, but um, but they're. Uh, I'm grateful for the people who are here, and um, the uh, the topic of this discussion, which Lorenzo asked me to do, and I was delighted because it's something that has been on my mind a lot lately, and it's very dear to my heart, um, is is the establishment of a tribal land base. And um, I'd like to share a little poem first to start us off about that. Because I really believe that this is a crucial topic, and the time has come to recreate as we take control of our own fate. It can clearly see what is coming down in the global village it can be found. Participation across all nations at every galactivation station. It's up to us to get the act together. We be bracing for some big stormy weather. I don't put out the mean shit on earth, but it's still my job to help the rebirth of this new revolution, evolution solution. From the bottom to the top, it ain't gonna stop until all the people can wake up and be real. Now eyes are opening and lies unraveling. We turn off the media and go out traveling. Organize, emphasize, harmonic infestation. Body, mind, spirit into psychoblastivation. Turn on your mind and what you will find. Everywhere you look, you can see, see, see. Oppressed generations about to be freed from the shackles and the tangles and the hands that strangle. We are the free ones. We fight without guns. See, feel, and hear without all the fear. I live fast, but I won't die young. I'm making sure that my song is sung. So sing it with me and it'll set us free. For we are the children of the omniverse with an old new view of Gaia Earth. From the east to the west, we're going to take the test. And when we pass it, going to take my assets out in the streets with the freaky funky beats, holding on to the vision of my conscious decision. Holding on to the vision of my conscious decision. Thank you. It's an honor to share that. Um, and uh, so I I wanted to start out the discussion also by um, by asking the question, what, what does it mean to be a tribal land base? Because that was the topic that we decided on. And that's kind of an undefined thing. What is a tribal land base? And I'd like to throw out the idea of tribalism, Tribes. What what is a tribe in this modern day, and are we a tribe? And what defines our tribe? And how can we be a tribe? And why do we want to be a tribe if we do? These kinds of things to clarify some of I think the roots of what we're getting at here. And I was really hoping this could be a discussion. And I have a lot of things to say and questions to ask. I'm wondering, where are the mics for the audience? Can we make sure those are easily accessible? <clears throat> because um, I feel like uh, there's a big mess going on, obviously. I like to call it the mess collectively. You know, there's all of the war and all of the environmental destruction, the water shortages, the global warming so on and so forth. It's really one big mess, and it's going to take a shift in consciousness to fix it, not just one part at a time. And so I'm wondering, what are we going to do? 
to make it through this shift? And what is a tribe, and how can we use tribalism to help us move to the next phase? Does anyone want to say anything about tribalism, or if you feel you're part of a tribe, or what this tribe is? Uh, I just want to add that... uh Gary Snyder, one of his essays in his book, uh, Earth Household, 1966 maybe, 1967, is Why Tribe? Uh, which is right to the point of what we're still discussing. And I just want to add that there's a, a, a long historical context, not just um, going back to the 60s, but going back um, uh, well, for one, a hundred years before that to the 1840s, when a lot of groups formed in upstate New York and other locations as collectives and uh, tribal groups. And it, it's, it goes back to our most ancient roots of, of how we cooperate and work together. And we can get you know, a lot done that way. The 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 forces, the the coercive forces of control, all work to keep people apart and separate. And so, tribe is is the healing medicine for that. Nice, nice tribe as a healing medicine. Um. There is an axiom that someone, I don't even remember who told me when I was really young, that it stayed with me and it's very, you know, I feel when I think about tribalism and choices of our lifestyles, when someone someone told me once is that you, you can't choose your relatives, but you can choose your family. And something about that, you know, and it's gotten me through a lot of times where I've been like, oh, geez, my relatives are really, you know intense or screwed up people or whatever and then I look around and I'm like well I can choose to re-surround myself with the kind of people that support my ideals and ethics and lifestyle choices and that is something that's a very empowering feeling to be able to make those choices actively and in some ironic ways the very mechanisms which uh, we view as our, our captivators are some of the very things which give us the freedom to make these choices in our life now you know the irony of living in America and being able to travel freely around the world for example with my American passport has enabled me to meet a lot of more people that I consider my family and members of my tribe so uh, just to think about that there is some dualities that we examine in what contains us and what frees us as well and in our ability to make these selections of our tribe and what we want to do with that you know it's just a lot of factors to consider yes and what about the future and how does tribalism fit into that or whatever you wanted to say well I just want to pick up on the thoughts that you were saying about you can't choose your family or you can't choose your relatives But um, you can choose your family or your tribe. And tribe is about cooperation and being there for each other. I mean, I love my family, but I start to talk about psychedelics and they start freaking out and they want to go out the door, you know? So when you come here, like setting up this camp, you know, we were over there and we were, we were feeling guilty watching you guys put up the yurt here and we should go over and help them while our thing's blowing away, so we got to fix that and all that. and. We did that, but then we came over and, you know, we, okay, we give you 20 minutes here and 15 minutes here. And like Brooke said, something needs to be done and somebody would just come in and fill it in. And to me, that's what Tribe is all about, is really working together and filling in and, and being complimentary and really celebrating the diversity. One of the things I love about this tribe is the diversity and all the people from different countries that come. And here's somebody who can barely speak your language and you totally, you connect. So I think you're stuck with family and you choose your tribe. And I think a tribe is superior from, like, you know, a nuclear contracted family unit. Let's all hunker down and get our shotguns and wait. You know, it's a difference. Uh, 
I think it's clear that uh, working together like we do at Burning Man is going to be a crucial part of surviving the shift. I'm trying to think about the future generations and my grandchildren and great-grandchildren. And uh, I'm, I'm knowing that there's going to be a huge shift with peak oil happening and the uh, whole food system is going to collapse. So... Obviously, we're going to need to be learning new skills and growing new foods and growing foods and working together. And I think this is, you know, the the crucial part of of this kind of tribalism, whether it's putting up a yurt or raising food in a garden. uh, We're going to have to get back to the basics. I was just going to add that after spending many years part of my time in Bali, uh, and noticing the cultures that have had tribalism as their base, they come from a m- more homogenous space. And, of course, we're the highly accentuated, individualized situation. And so we're going to have this completely new version. I don't, sometimes the word bugs me. I mean, I, I, I don't mind it, but I don't know that that's really the word that we'll end up with. Sometimes tribalism is also described in like some of the spiral dynamics and some of that stuff as a lower level because it's one tribe against another. You know, you're you're cool with your tribe, but then there's the other tribe, and I think we're really working with a way broader sense of diversity and autonomy inside of togetherness. So. Sweet, and it's always going to be hard to define what is a tribe or our tribe because there's so many overlapping. Oh. It's, it's so oddly familiar, some of this discussion. It's kind of like deja vu. Um, I support what you do deeply, heartily. Um, and actually, I, I recognize that I've got Will Staple here beside me. And um, I don't know, you might say we're from the same tribe. Is that, is that right, Will? Yeah. Um, so there were a lot of, ex- of experiments of how to pull this off and make it work back in the 60s, you know, if you will indulge us to speak just a little of what some of the stuff that we did, some of which you know worked and some of which did not, from uh, the model of Stephen Gaskin and, and the farm and collectivist to the way we did it um, on San Juan Ridge, uh, which was a larger collective, sort of a loose federation of individual like-minded landowners, people who bought land all around one place, and groups of people who would pool their resources to buy a parcel of land, but that all managed to connect on a, to form a community. And I think that was what was so remarkable uh, about what we pulled off on San Juan Ridge that way with CB radios. We did have CB. I was I was uh, I had the only telephone on the ridge for uh, in our part of the ridge for a long time. So I had one of those buttons and could make telephone calls for you know they would speak in the CB and I would push a button and, and like this link to the world. But yes, we had two CB CB breaks every day. I mean CB breaks. Yeah, when at CB breaks two CB breaks <laughs> I get it duh um, and uh, but more particularly I, I want to speak of our festivals uh, twice a year everybody in the community uh, along the ridge who was you know kind of of like mind and it was always tricky and a political thing, figuring you know who gets invited, who's in and who's out, and just how to do it. And different communities in different counties have done this different ways. There's you know um, Nevada County was different from Southern Humboldt, who kind of had had a different, actually a more anarchistic open system, I think. Anyway, we had two festivals every year at May Day and Halloween. And everybody would come, and we developed rituals, which um, 
the children learned and now carry on. Sounds tribal. It's very tribal. Yeah. It's a, so there's a, there's a maypole at uh, May Day, and there's a spirit altar with with skulls and um, other things at Halloween. Uh, and, you know, Green Man comes out, and May Maidens are part of it every year, and people, you know, vie in the community. Who's going to be the May Maidens this year for, you know, the, for the girls who are at a certain age um, to come into that? And it's kind of in motion all the time. But I think it takes something like that. It takes some, some ritual or spiritual dimension to hold a community together and then if you can get it working at a community level then you can link up these smaller collectives and, and like-minded uh, residents and landowners and um, beautiful have some political clout will may have you know a different idea no I, I quite agree uh, I just wanted to say that one part, there, though there are many, uh, the mothers have a thing and uh, they have a parade of uh, the, goblin the goblin children, and also we say aloud the name of uh, the newborn, and we also say that everyone says aloud the name of anyone who has died, which is always quite moving. But we have a circle, and for 45 minutes... Anybody can step inside the circle and, and have the attention. Right. And circle. a free speech circle. And uh, it takes a little bit of gumption to get out there, but then, and it's a little psychedelic when you stand up because you have all the attention on you briefly. But a lot of things get said, and a lot of the things you are going to say, somebody else says. But I think that, and I think it's important, though, that here is a place that anybody that wants to be heard can be heard. I just wanted to emphasize yeah, that one. Yeah. Yeah. Nice structure. Well, um, I was just kind of responding to your question about maybe the future of tribalism. And um, me and my husband are actually from Fairbanks, Alaska. And, you know, there's really not that many like-minded people in our physical community um, that feel the same way we do about sacred plant allies and, you know, psychedelics and... Um, but actually, like, listening to Lorenzo's show, you know, listening to his podcast, and, and, like, we spend most of our time, like, in this cyber tribe, and I still feel, like, connected, you know? So I feel like maybe the future of tribalism is going to reach beyond, like, geographical location, because we can't really afford to, like, travel everywhere, you know, and, you know, meet all these different people. And, I mean, so we came to Burning Man, which is great, because it's, like, a gathering of the tribes. You know, we get to do it all at once. But um, I really think that like without that element you know like it would just be really hard to do something like that because you can pull all the people from across the world they're interested instead of just like in the general geographic region and um so it's just been really exciting for us to be here and actually be a physical part of it for the first time you know it feels like so i just wanted to add that in about you know the internet and how exciting it's getting and i think that could have a lot to do with it Sweet. Welcome. I have a question while well, you still have the mic. Yeah. Um, moving a little beyond like tribalism and that kind of discussion, in a more practical sense, what do you think are some of the most important ways that we can prepare for the coming shift? That's a good question. Um, I've thought a lot about that, and we have, and um, it it used to be a few years ago that I really felt the need to be politically active, like actively trying to like preach or missionize my point of view, you know. And um, then lately I've kind of started to think that maybe the best way to do it is to just live your point of view and like be like a shining example to people who will go like, well, why are you so happy? Why is, why is that person so fulfilled? And, you know, or why is, you know, and so I think... Um, which is what I'm saying about the tribalism thing. It's weird because it's a collection of individuals who are doing that, you know, and they're just getting together because they, they're they all doing that. And it's like we live in a town where maybe, you know, nobody else is really doing the same thing we're doing, but we can continue to do it and, not, and feel connected to other people, you know, that are doing the same thing um, without having to, like, necessarily preach or, or, you know. And so I think that 
I don't know. That's really important. I think it's just preparing yourself and like letting that be like a guide for others. Sweet. Prepare yourself. Be a model. And how about others? What ways can we prepare for the shift? I mean, do you think buying land and setting up a community as they've described on the ridge? Or what what do we really what what should be our goal if we're going to uh try to get beyond this crazy shift? Well, you know, the thing, because obviously we spend a lot of time talking and thinking about this, everybody, the whole group of us I know, and one of the things that uh, has popped out pretty clearly to me is that there are such uh, a wide range of requirements and needs uh, to build something, to get together, and in particular, in 2012, I'm going to be 70 years old. And so I'm looking for a 420-friendly nursing home, you know? <laughs> Not really, but it's got to be 420-friendly. But what I'm getting at is I think that old people like us can add something to the tribe, like taking care of the young kids, which is what I'd like to do. And But in your design, I think that we have to look at are we going to this is where we want to this is a tribal land base and so we're going to have birthing facilities and what about when we start getting old because you're not that far behind me only two or three decades but uh, they seem to swing by so I think that as we're thinking about these things each one of us has to say okay I can do this right now but ten years from now are the the facility is going to be here for me or the help and so it circles right back to what you started with the tribe and I think if we really come together as a tribe who can do what just like we do here in the playa that's the way I think it will work without uh, I I don't know that we can do a top down I think this has got to come from the bottom up one of the things that's really interesting about um, preparing to do things together as a group is is what kind of group is a manageable number and coming together under what circumstances is something that's really crucial. Because if you've done Burning Man a few times, you know there's camps that are not big enough to provide enough resources. You know, you can go renegade, you and your two guys, but you're not going to have a yurt. You're not going to have a microphone and discussions and things like that. Hopefully, someone else will, so you can go check it out. You know, and then there's groups that are too large. I've been involved in organizations where there's hundreds of people. You don't even meet all the other people involved there. And sometimes that works, and sometimes it doesn't. And you know, there's you know, you can look at scientific experiments where you put a bunch of rabbits in a box, or you put two rabbits in a box with a lot of food, and they're going to multiply to the point of break. And examining what resources people need, and at what point we can establish groups of people that are able to manage that without overabundance of resources allocated to a group or overmanagement. You know, something like, uh, you know, America was founded on the idea of state sovereignty, which we've spent 200 years kicking out now and moving into federalism. And that's an analogous thing for taking the management out of the hands of a small group of people and moving it into a superstructure, which has benefits less and less people as as kind of become obvious so finding a group of people that is able to manage themselves and their resources in an appropriate manner but once you overabundance resources the group gets bigger and things like that so creating a certain amount but not having too much ironically is a factor and things like that you know having under or over abundance I don't know these are things that I've considered as the size of groups because what I was listening to law what you're saying about you know that it's not always about tribe you know and these things of people coming together and oh I'm cool with these guys but not these guys you know and that is something that's an interesting factor because you have to deal with that but at the same time recognizing that you know, that great psychedelic union with everything doesn't always work out when you're trying to decide like what to cook for dinner you know, with a 400 people or 4,000 or 40 or 4 million or whatever. And so these are all the things that I have personal challenges trying to decide is like how can we expand our acceptance of people as a whole but recognize the reality of what we can manage in our day-to-day resources and, and things that we have to do to provide for our community, recognizing that some people are not comfortable, say, in a space where 
cannabis is being smoked. Now, some of us have grown up in multiple generations of this and accepting that there are differences and trying to figure out how to put those together in a manageable way, but without uh, degrading into versus modes. I don't know how to explain more. It makes sense. I think these are going to be the challenges of the future of how to create these communities or tribes or whatever. Um, And we have a lot of past experience from the 60s and 70s in this country at least and throughout history. So maybe there's plenty of models to draw from and so forth. What I'm interested in more right now is like really what I can do in the next year or three years or five years to start paving the way for this. Obviously, we're going to work out a lot of bugs as we go. And there will be different experiments and different sizes. And um, each spot will have its own formula that will work. Um, but what I, you mentioned resources, and that's big on my mind. And I, I personally feel like the water, the fresh water shortage is going to be the next huge problem. I mean, it already is a huge problem. And besides the running out of petroleum and that all shifting and the heating up of the planet, the the simple fact that we're we're running out of fresh water and there's already wars being fought over this and there's already people dehydrated and it's and there's already crop failures and so on. So this is something that's coming faster and faster. And one of my big things is protecting resources. So does anyone else have something to add about resources or what you think are the most important ways to prepare? I haven't been able to figure out um, any kind of large community or, or global solution to, <clears throat> to the, our resource problems. But the way that I've decided to prepare is by getting, and, you know, I think it's a solid way for a start, is by getting myself off, off grids that I, don't, um, that I don't see that are going to continue or that I don't wish to continue. For instance, like, my, me and John, my partner, moved into an RV and we're trying to, like, replace everything that we have with sustainable <coughs> stuff and not stuff that's dependent on a government system that we're not interested in. We've tried to work with other communities or tried to like form communities and tribes, but I can't seem to get my head around how to do that appropriately. But it seems like the uh, what she was saying earlier is just to be the change first, and once you've built yourself your own foundation where you can actually do what you preach, what you're doing first, what you'd like to see happen, that seems like the most solid way to start to me. Well, one of the things that I thought was interesting about what you're talking about about water is it's one of the most pressing resources. It composes over 70% of your body, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, one of the functions of tribes traditionally has been the preservation of knowledge and important knowledge that's relevant, especially to geographical spaces because the world is large. Not every place handles a problem in the same way. And you could take water as a classic example that there have been traditional ways of allocating the precious resource of water that have been forgotten due to the exact challenge that I was saying of, you know, micromanaged systems being exploded into, you know, federal governments or larger, larger systems. So if you look at somewhere like the Middle East where they've had um, an ancient system called kanats, where it's underground canals that literally carry the water in a responsible way. And people can go in the community and gather water from these places called canats. And, you know, there have been people taking the stones from the canats to go build things with them and slowly dismantling them. And they've been building dams and reservoirs instead and pumping aquifers. Hasn't been working out so well. People forgot where the canats are. They don't even know that they exist. They don't know that they're perfectly... Uh, functional and reliable way to get water. They believe that the only way they can get it is to turn on the tap because they've forgotten. And the same thing right now, an example in Western Europe where they have a totally different way of, of getting the water back is 
you know, on top of hills where they have depressions, like in England, they used to build these condensation pools with a certain kinds of clay and stone that would actually take the fog and condense it into water again, into pools that were totally usable for irrigation and farming. And it's an appropriate solution to that geographical area that's been forgotten again. And people are starting to rekindle their awareness of these knowledges that had been preserved through small groups of people. And that's one of the interesting challenges is that when things become larger, then they say, well, we've got to manage thousands of people. We should build a dam. And then, you know, next thing you know that you have the problem in China where the Yellow River is now not flooding the plains of southern Asia as it used to, and the river continues to divert its path every few years and cause new problems of flooding in the wrong places and not water where it needs to go. So kind of what the challenge of uh, of how to allocate our resources, a lot of these problems have already been solved, but we've kind of screwed them up by forgetting our very own solutions, by like looking beyond what we're able to manage and not looking at Western Europe or the Middle East and saying, well, we built a dam over here in Colorado, so that's going to work for you over in Saudi Arabia. And like looking more closely at our specific situations and looking at what's been done in the past and preserving that knowledge and passing it on just like what you're doing right now by asking, you know, what have, what have you learned? What have you figured out? And how can we share that? I think that's one of the most important things that a tribe of people could do in order to preserve their resources is look, look at how it's been done before. Like people have been around for quite some time and we've only been screwing it up, so to speak, in the last 200, 300 years, arguably. Um, there's a really interesting phrase I heard not that long ago that if it doesn't grow out of the ground, it, was, it came out of a mine. And if you think about everything that's sitting in this room, every article of clothing, this roof, this microphone, every single thing that we're touching was made by a machine that was made out of metal. So I, I'm always in this, of this mind that this is not a time to go against anything. We are one tribe, whether we like to identify it or not. I mean, George Bush is part of the tribe. Every guy that's a scientist working at a metallurgy lab is part of the tribe. These people are the ones who are providing the future. The science, the technology, that highest order of thinking. I think the problem is it's just so abstracted. They get caught up in their laboratories. They get caught up in their paycheck. They get caught up in their retirement funds. And they get into the problem of they are their tribe. And we don't belong to their tribe. And we have to avoid the same thing. It's really easy for us to start saying, well, we're the open-minded, crystal clear thinking, um, hypnotically minded or whatever, psychedelically minded people. And then we become a, a them to them. So I think what's really critical in all of this is we can't turn against anything. We can't turn against NASA. We can't turn against satellites. We can't turn against GPS. Water, the most important resource in the world, is primarily extracted from underground through steel pipes that run with very, very highly sophisticated water pumps that have to have an electrical grid. And you can't do that with 12-volt solar voltaic cells. You know, so how do we maintain the idea of inclusive tribalism that includes everything that exists? We're, we're not going to be able to turn off the need for electricity. We're not going to be able to go backwards. We're not going to be able to revert to ancient, ancient, ancient stuff unless the population just gets reduced by maybe 90%. Could happen. It could happen, yeah, but... That would be one thing to maybe work away from, but not necessarily go against. You know, we can't fight the military, but perhaps we can manifest a much better invitation. Because I don't see the military offering any invitation. I don't see the industrial corporate complex offering any invitation other than buy our shit. Protective um, island state. The the whole weapons industry, military industrial complex is going in, there's a whole segment, they're just like, we're, we've got this high tech people who are like we're, well the, the urgency that you're talking about 
the world situation last week with Iran and the United States and Iraq has just ratcheted up. The, the time frame before the, the shift could, could happen so quickly, so quickly. They, they, Iran is saying that the United States is going to have to get out of Iraq in a few months. They're, they're saying that the power structure there is... We, we do not realize how bad Baghdad is. They've blown up the bridges, four bridges, the main bridges around Baghdad. The, 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 the place, the prime minister of Iraq has just gone to Syria and Iran in the last couple of weeks. And is basically, those are Bush's enemies. And the artificially low price of the pump we've got right now, okay, we've, the urgency that we use our resources right now, that our functioning system, and come together as a world spirit, there's just no other, nothing other than every opportunity to hold ourselves higher to a higher level of awareness right now. And, and every interaction you have with somebody, bring a love consciousness, always. The focus of us being awake now has never been more urgent. You know, McKenna's uh, archaic revival, tribalism, okay, it is essential now that Bush is part of our tribe. Okay? Uh, Aminajad is part of our tribe. Putin is part of our tribe. Chavez is part of our tribe. And right now, it's preparing. There's a third world war going on right now. There's countries, energy is being used <clears throat> as a weapon. Um... Gaza has just Israeli stopped shipments of uh, fuel into Gaza, and so Bangladesh is melting down. The, the, there's the global warming. There's urgency everywhere you look. Everywhere you look, the mess. <laughs> the mess. So what can you do? Hold can ourselves responsible to be the best people that we can be and reach out to our friends, family, and tell them how much we love them and hug them <laughs> and, and, and do it. Do it. That sounds like good medicine. Um, I have a question. Does anyone know of any projects that you're involved with or that you know of where people are actively doing something fresh where, you know, like buying land or protecting resources or... And I also have another question related to that. If we are to start doing this, to start saying, okay, here's a property with an amazing spring water flow that's really safe for the future and good solar potential, let's focus on buying that for our future, back to the land, whatever... Do we have an obligation to stay in the United States and do those projects here? Or, you know, because this government is becoming increasingly fascist, etc., um, what about the idea of flight, of heading to other countries to start these kinds of places where we can grow food? Um, will, will the country be abandoned and taken over, or should we stay here and try to create something new, or should we flee the crazy Bush crime family, or... Um, how does that all fit together, and are there any projects that you know of that are doing this? Well, this I, I had an idea from your earlier question, and this sort of relates to what you were just talking about, and that is that um, I think that human beings have this propensity for projecting uh, scenarios into the future, and we're really good at that. If we uh, exploit that, we can see possible ways that things might come down, and then we can, you know, like the Boy Scouts motto, we can try to be prepared. Um, one of the things in my life as someone who's been interested in psychoactive drugs is that there, it seems that there have repeatedly been times where I've sort of been kicking myself because some window of opportunity to obtain something closed. 
And you can think one example is ketamine um, being scheduled, and uh, it used to be much easier and cheaper, and uh, and you, you know you didn't have to do any illegal smuggling. Uh, it was completely reasonable for you to come back from Mexico with some medicine. So. Um, being very aware that the window of opportunity that we have right now might not always be open. And to bring it back to what you were just talking about, I can foresee a time where it will not be possible for us to leave the United States. And so, I mean, I'm not saying that we should all run like hell to Costa Rica or wherever. But, uh, but it, you know, it could, it could be that there will be a time in the future where the opportunity we have now to set up a tribal land base somewhere else, somewhere saner, somewhere that seems more stable, somewhere that the rest of the country doesn't hate, I mean the rest of the world rather doesn't hate, that that window will get smaller and smaller until it, it's really hard to, to do. The time is now. Wait, I think La was waiting. Can I just say something really quick? Um, I'm part of a group of people looking to buy land, and I know many in in the same category. And the urge to do so here at this time still remains with me because I still have this optimistical viewpoint that it's going to shift. And this is like a really tricky, slippery slope because we're all watching and we're all creators and we're all creating. So, like, at what point are we responsible for not holding the imagination of our own future, you know, fully and doing it here where we already live. Yeah, but then there's the question, how bad will it have to get or at what point would be the trigger point and would it be too late? And that's just a weird paradoxical mind state to be in. So I just am adding that in. But I think doing it, doing it anywhere, doing it now... And, but not doing it out of fear. I think that's I, what I came to this year. I faced some fear issues in my life around a health issue, and it just came up so big for me that fear is not, it, we have to eliminate that as our motivator. We have to use what we see around us to clue us in, but not operate out of that distress. So it's, tr- it's so tricky, slippery. Uh. It's kind of interesting to think about, um, you know, okay, so if you do go start up this thing, what, what happens in the next generation, you know, comes around and you are in a place like America, for example, where cultural influences are not to be ignored. Uh, for example, I have I've, I spent a lot of time in Australia, and there's a lot of uh, intentional communities that started in a certain area of Australia in, in the 70s. And there's a specific group of people I've spent a lot of time with, and a dear friend of mine, I wish he was here now, he's here at Burning Man for his first time this year, grew up in a community um, in Nimbin, Australia, which is known as a very um, open-minded and traditionally very progressive community. In the 1970s, it was nothing but a bunch of mountain farmland, well, mountain land, excuse me, which was not attractive to the rest of Australia, who was promoting aggressive farming and pasteurization of the land, removal of trees. And so these guys were like, well, hey, we'll take the land you don't want up at the top of the mountains. It's got water, and we can grow our pot there, or whatever we want to do. And that's what they started doing in the 70s. So fast forward, 2007, there are people that have grown up there. They've lived that way. I know them. They're my friends. They're the same age as me. I know their parents. I hang out with them, too. And one of my friends has grown up there, and when he was in his teenage years, he decided to purchase a piece of land that was a part of his intentional community. So he bought the land, he's built a house on it now, and he lives there. And it isn't all the kids of, that are in his generation or our generation don't feel the same way about the place where they grew up because of the cultural influences have made them not feel the same way. And another friend of mine, same, same area, different community, her, her, uh, basically her brother of the community, the, another child of another parent on there, has decided that he doesn't really give a shit about the community anymore, and he's started putting landfill, quite literally, on his land, just like old cars and like not disposing of his trash and just, just basically turning this plot of land that belongs to him, technically, but is part of the community, into a, a literal garbage dump, and. The rest of the community is not sure what to do about it. And then in another situation, someone else wants to build a road 
through their piece of land to go to this other place so they can drive a water truck up there to do whatever they need to do at the top of the mountain, if you know what I mean. And then the other guys are like, no, if you build a road, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So you get on into these later plans, and you got to remember that if you are going to start a community somewhere, the rest of the people around you are still going to influence, and you can't guarantee that the next generation of people is going to feel the same way that you do. So in the best of situations, you can pick an environment that has the, you know, what you imagine to be the least potential for social corruption, but at the same time, there's a very big wild card that comes with saying, like, let's plant this here because we don't know what all the rest of our neighbors are going to be doing in, in 20 years. Like, are they going to convince somebody that they just shouldn't care anymore about this project? their parents started and that's a concern for me because I've seen it happen I think if it gets to a certain point of desperation people will uh, have no choice but to protect the little water they have or whatever so at the time of starting these communities, don't you think people then just felt the same as we do now that, holy crap, the end of the world might be tomorrow? I mean, if people have been thinking this for 40 years and their parents think that, and like, okay, oh, you figured that out, but that hasn't changed in Australia. It's gotten worse in their very community where they've grown up with the ideal everything, man. Like, I mean, you're talking ayahuasca growing over your, your maple trees or whatever, and the kids still just don't get it. And that I'm having trouble with. Like I, I, th- I see what you're saying about desperation just making it so obvious, but it doesn't seem to have worked that way. And so if it isn't desperation that's going to drive us there, or fear, as you're saying, is, being a, is, a, is a crucial non-motivator, what are the positive things that are going to make people say, yeah, man, I'm in? Well, we've kind of, we had pretty good luck that way, that uh, the second generation is really came in and really liked it and took over a lot of the stuff and um, now they've pretty much taken over the planning of these uh, ceremonies like the May Day and the Halloween that the the old farts used to get together every year and try and figure out what the proper order of things was. What's first? The shooting of the arrows or the chanting of the Shingyo or the you know, you know, it was never written down for some reason. But anyway, they do that then. And uh, let's see, a lot of the kids went off to college. And uh, most of them had come back, actually. Uh, um, there's going to be rebellion, intergenerational rebellion. That's why we weren't, we're like our parents. And... Uh, Organic food and an outdoor lifestyle and elemental comforts is not going to be for every kid. And they're, when they go to high school, they might not want to be picked up in an old beat-up pickup because their other friends are getting picked up in Mercedes or some other car. And, and when it comes to the prom, you know, you don't want to, you know, the, it's this big teenage thing. You want to be like everyone else. Okay, this is a given, but... It's true some people have gone to college and then they go to the city and because they don't want their old life, but they know where they came from. And when other things don't work out, they have something to drop back into. So, yeah, they go out and, they, and also they put down their parents, and you guys are just so simple, you know. But they gradually, oh, yeah... You're not, uh, you don't have these big rents and you don't have this big overhead and you don't have this credit card debt that we just accidentally got into. And now we can see. And also, uh, now that we have a kid, we don't want to raise him in the city. We want to go back to the country and, you know, uh, know that when we, the kid is not going to be ripped off uh, between school and home. So I like your style because this isn't like a simple thing. You know, there are contradictions here, and there's going to be, it's a little more complicated, but uh, it's, it's wonderful for a child to know where they came from, what their tribe is, and they have a place to come back to if uh, what they rebelled against turns out to be better than they thought it was. Yeah. And, and I'll just add that uh, it was at the festivals, at May Day and Halloween, 
um, all the kids would make a great effort. I mean, they would cross the country to come back from school uh, to be there uh, for Halloween or for May Day. It was just really nice. And then they would get up and speak, you know, in the free speech period and kind of report to everyone what's happening. And it was speaking from the heart. That's what it was called. Yeah, yeah, speaking from the heart. That was it. Speaking from the from the heart. I myself found, uh, you know, I mean, I'd been a mountain hippie for a long time and went back to school that, uh, I don't know, I, I, I had, you know, I had a tribe. They couldn't push me around and tell me what to do. I mean, I felt like I was a foreign exchange student, but, you know, but like I had a culture that I came from. Yeah. So that I don't talk all night, because you guys have given me so many great ideas, and, and I think this conversation is really worthwhile. Uh, my first observation about your story of, of your friends and then your success stories, one little notice difference I noticed, because you started out by talking about tribe, is you brought the young people in to start planning the ceremonies. They, instead of a hierarchy, it sounds like more of a, a hierarchy, a cooperation thing. So that, that I think bringing the making the tribe that you feel of really a tribe, not just a place to live. And if you look at the dance community from San Diego to Vancouver, there are a lot of different cultures, but collectively, it's a there's a lot of commonality, and I think we're. We're shaking loose. I'm really optimistic right now, and I agree with you. Your analysis of the situation: if if you're for the status quo, you're in, you're going to be unhappy. I'm afraid because things are going to change, and so the best of times, worst of times situation. I think it's going to be the best of times for those of us who want change, and the worst of times for those who want the status quo. Now, not that considering that you still have to take in the fact that it's going to be really ugly if the food supply does what I think it'll do, etc. And so I'm now looking, what can I do to put a stake in the ground so that my grandchildren's children will have a nice place to live? And I think possibly we have to look the seven generations out if we're going to do it. Now, then you come back to reality. You know, I, I've got to live the rest of my life, and I want to do some, some good things, too. So the only little thing I want to add here is, is an experience that we went through. We had about a dozen of us down in San Diego, and we got together only with, with friends who were really close physically so that we could start planning exactly this. And we, we did really well uh, for months. We started planning what we're going to do, how, how, you know, working out the details. And then one of our group went out and bought a magnificent piece of land, and our group fell apart because it became his land project. And everything we'd read about the successful communities of the 60s, they said, don't buy the land until you've got the, the plan in place. And so a lot of us don't have, have any resources or few. And, and what you talked about on the ridge was really cool, is that the people that could afford it were buying land close to each other and those that had to come together and do it. What One of the suggestions that uh, things I've talked to Sobe about before uh, this weekend is if we can find a way in cyberspace between now and next year's burn to do an accelerated evolution of 10 years of building community relationships and all to get some some idea of how we do it you know how do we get along what do we do for young ki kids infants is there schooling is there daycare is there is it close to, you know what are our requirements and how do we interact with each other before buying the land because what we've learned the hard way is, and we were making really good progress, but once somebody owns the land herself or himself, then it's their project and it's no longer the group. And that's maybe not all the time, but that happened to us. So that's my two cents. And there are many models for collective ownership, of course. And can you believe it? For uh, some odd reason, the only two recordings we captured on the 8-track box cut off at the one-hour mark, and uh, so the remainder of this conversation will have to come later, assuming we can recover the audio from a video recorder that may have continued working during uh, all the dust storms that we had. But uh, so far, no one has had the time or the courage to check that out, so uh, stay tuned, as they say, 
for another chapter of our Burning Man adventures in a few weeks. In any event, uh, I think you'll agree with me that uh, this was a really interesting conversation, and I hope it will inspire you to hold some ply logs of your own. Before going to Burning Man this year, I had a grand vision of creating a YouTube-like place for fellow saloners to post their own ply logs for others to comment on and to uh, kind of organically grow these conversations around the world. But uh, the more I thought about what it would take to set all this up, I decided that it was way more ambitious a project than I've got the time for. Uh, you know, like you, I've got to be careful to not let this podcasting thing take over too much of my time. So I've begun to limit myself as to how much time I spend online so that I can be sure to continue reading and uh, doing a little bit more writing myself. And that's why you don't see me showing up on the forums every day and uh, why even my longtime friends seldom get an email from me anymore. Now don't get me wrong, uh, there is nothing I'd rather do each week than to put out these podcasts. And I, if I hadn't already had a life when I began this little hobby, I'd probably be doing nothing but podcasting and uh, interacting with you via email or on the forums over at thegrowreport.com. And I still haven't uh, had a chance to get very involved with that nice MySpace site that a couple of our fellow saloners set up for me. The truth is, uh, I'd really rather hang out on the forums than uh, continue working on this darn book that just won't let me go. And then, of course, there are the DVDs that I make for my grandkids and the YouTube project of my Navy days that I've begun. So, uh, you see, I'm not bored in my old age. But uh, then again, as far as I'm concerned, old age is still a long way off for me. At least that's how I still feel on the inside, even if the outside's trying to tell me something else. And speaking of the world outside of podcast land, uh, last week I had the happy experience of meeting a fellow saloner, Max, who was attending the same conference I was. It was the uh, Conference on Procession and Ancient Knowledge, and it was the second year there for both of us. Luckily, uh, Max recognized me from the picture on the podcast, and so we were able to connect and spend some time together. But uh, that chance meeting made me wonder how many times you might have uh, been somewhere that other saloners were, and yet you never knew. You know, since there are usually uh, at least 50 or more people downloading a Psychedelic Salon podcast at any time, uh, not to mention the mirror and streaming sites, my guess is is that if you go to places where the tribe hangs out, you'll probably be in the company of a fellow saloner. Now, I'm not pointing that out to brag about these podcasts, but to encourage you to find ways to start reaching out and making some connections with others who are thinking about some of the same things that we're interested in here in the salon. And you might even be surprised at uh, who some of your new friends turn out to be. And now for a final note, although life has been a little hectic here around the salon these past few weeks, uh, that really was no excuse for me to have missed doing something that had been on my work list, uh, my unread work list, I guess, for over a week. And that was to send an audio greeting to my friend and fellow podcaster, KMO. Last week was KMO's one-year anniversary of podcasting from the Sea Realm, which I subscribe to through iTunes, but you can uh, also get it directly through links on our psychedelicsalon.org site. Now, if you haven't heard one of uh, KMO's programs yet, you might want to check it out now. Uh, on KMO's shows, uh, I've heard you know things like a 40-minute in-depth interview with authors who only get a few minutes on podcasts like Scientific Americans. Not that that isn't a good podcast, it's just that KMO does his subjects uh, a lot more justice by giving them the time they deserve. And it was KMO, by the way, who uh, introduced me to the Cannabis Podcast Network over at dopefiend.co.uk. And had it not been for KMO, I might have missed that whole line of podcast stars over there like The Dope Fiend, and Zandor and Mrs. Zandor, and Lefty, Queer Ninja, Max Freakout, Black Beauty, and, and a whole cast of characters that uh, I now think of as my extended family. Even though I've never met KMO or any of these other podcasters, uh, it's almost as if we seem to know each other in some strange new sort of way. For example, uh, when I hear the dope fiend read an email from someone who has also sent an email to me, well, uh, somehow that makes me feel more deeply connected to a, a really large and, and very loving extended family. You know, like somebody said in, a, in the plylog we just heard, you can't choose your relatives, but you can choose your family. Uh, now, how did I get here? 
I guess it's just a, a long way of saying congratulations to KMO, one of our family members, on the first anniversary of the Sea Realm, which you can find at c-realmpodcast.podomatic.com. And before I go, I want to mention that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are protected under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 2.5 License. And if you have any questions about that, just click on the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which may be found at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you have any questions, comments, complaints, or suggestions about these podcasts, uh, hey, just send them to Lorenzo at MatrixMasters.com. And Jacques Cordell and Wells, my friends who make music under the name Chateau Hayuk, thanks again, guys, for the use of your music here in the salon. And Seabrook, La, John, Darren, Mark, and all of my fellow pod cluster campers, hey, thanks again for everything, you guys. You guys are the best. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.